Book One, Chapters Four to Ten of History of Animals by Aristotle. Translated by Darcy Wentworth Thompson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four Every animal is supplied with moisture and if the animal be deprived of the same by natural causes or artificial means, death ensues. Further, every animal has another part in which the moisture is contained. These parts are blood and vein, and in other animals there is something to correspond. But in these latter the parts are imperfect, being merely fibre and serum or lymph touch has its seat in a part uniform and homogeneous as in the flesh or something of the kind and generally with animals supplied with blood in the parts charged with blood in other animals it has its seat in parts analogous to the parts charged with blood but in all cases it is seated in parts that in their texture are homogeneous the active faculties, on the contrary, are seated in the parts that are heterogeneous, as, for instance, the business of preparing the food is seated in the mouth, and the office of locomotion in the feet, the wings, or in organs to correspond. Again, some animals are supplied with blood, as man, the horse, and all such animals as are, when full-grown, either destitute of feet, or two-footed, or four-footed. Other animals are bloodless, such as the bee and the wasp, and of marine animals, the cuttlefish, the crawfish, and all such animals as have more than four feet. Chapter 5 Again, some animals are viviparous, others oviparous, others vermiparous, or grub-bearing. Some are viviparous, such as man, the horse, the seal, and all other animals that are hair-coated, and of marine animals, the cetaceans, as the dolphin, and the so-called selachia. Of these latter animals, some have a tubular air-passage and no gills, as the dolphin and the whale the dolphin with the air-passage going through its back, the whale with the air-passage in its forehead. Others have uncovered gills, as the selachia, the sharks and rays. What we term an egg is a certain completed result of conception out of which the animal that is to be develops, and in such a way that in respect to its primitive germ it comes from part only of the egg, while the rest serves for food as the germ develops. A grub, on the other hand, is a thing out of which in its entirety the animal in its entirety develops, by differentiation and growth of the embryo. Of viviparous animals, some hatch eggs in their own interior, as creatures of the shark kind, Others engender in their interior a live fetus, as man and the horse. 
when the result of conception is perfected, with some animals a living creature is brought forth, with others an egg is brought to light, with others a grub. Of the eggs, some have egg-shells, and are of two different colors within, such as birds' eggs. Others are soft-skinned and of uniform color, as the eggs of animals of the shark kind. Of the grubs, some are from the first capable of movement, others are motionless. However, with regard to these phenomena, we shall speak precisely hereafter, when we come to treat of generation. Furthermore, some animals have feet, and some are destitute thereof. Of such as have feet, some animals have two, as is the case with men and birds, and with men and birds only. Some have four, as the lizard and the dog. Some have more, as the centipede and the bee. But all soever that have feet have an even number of them. Of swimming creatures that are destitute of feet, some have winglets or fins, as fishes, and of these, some have four fins, two above on the back, two below on the belly, as the gilt head and the bass. Some have two only, to wit, such as are exceedingly long and smooth, as the eel and the conger. Some have none at all as the muraina, but use the sea just as snakes use dry ground. And, by the way, snakes swim in water in just the same way. Of the shark kind, some have no fins, such as those that are flat and long-tailed, as the ray and the stingray. But these fishes swim actually by the undulatory motion of their flat bodies. The fishing frog, however, has fins, and so likewise have all such fishes as have not their flat surfaces thinned off to a sharp edge. Of those swimming creatures that appear to have feet, as is the case with the mollusks, these creatures swim by the aid of their feet and their fins as well, and they swim most rapidly backwards in the direction of the trunk as is the case with the cuttlefish, or sapia, and the calamari. And, by the way, neither of these latter can walk as the pulp or octopus can. The hard-skinned or crustaceous animals, like the crawfish, swim by the instrumentality of their tail-parts, and they swim most rapidly tail-foremost, by the aid of the fins developed upon that member. The newt swims by means of its feet and tail, and its tail resembles that of the sheet-fish, to compare little with great. Of animals that can fly, some are furnished with feathered wings, as the eagle and the hawk. Some are furnished with membranous wings, as the bee and the cockchafer. Others are furnished with leathern wings, as the flying fox and the bat. All flying creatures possessed of blood have feathered wings or leathern wings. The bloodless creatures have membranous wings, as insects. The creatures that have feathered wings 
or leathern wings have either two feet or no feet at all for there are said to be certain flying serpents in ethiopia that are destitute of feet creatures that have feathered wings are classed as a genus under the name of bird the other two genera the leathern winged and membrane winged are as yet without a generic title of creatures that can fly and are bloodless some are coleopterous or sheath-winged for they have their wings in a sheath or shard like the cockchafer and the dung-beetle others are sheathless and of these latter some are dipterous and some tetrapterous tetrapterous such as are comparatively large or have their stings in the tail dipterous such as are comparatively small or have their stings in front the coleoptera are without exception devoid of stings the diptera have the sting in front as the fly the horsefly the gadfly and the gnat bloodless animals as a general rule are inferior in point of size to blooded animals though by the way there are found in the sea some few bloodless creatures of abnormal size as in the case of certain mollusks and of these bloodless genera those are the largest that dwell in milder climates and those that inhabit the sea are larger than those living on dry land or in fresh water all creatures that are capable of motion move with four or more points of motion the blooded animals with four only as for instance man with two hands and two feet birds with two wings and two feet quadrupeds and fishes severally with four feet and four fins creatures that have two winglets or fins or that have none at all like serpents move all the same with not less than four points of motion for there are four bends in their bodies as they move or two bends together with their fins bloodless and many-footed animals whether furnished with wings or feet move with more than four points of motion as for instance the day-fly moves with four feet and four wings and i may observe in passing this creature is exceptional not only in regard to the duration of its existence whence it receives its name but also because though a quadruped it has wings also all animals move alike four-footed and many-footed in other words they all move cross-corner-wise and animals in general have two feet in advance the crab alone has four chapter six a very extensive genera of animals into which other subdivisions fall are the following one of birds one of fishes and another of cetaceans now all these creatures are blooded there is another genus of the hard-shell kind which is called oyster another of the soft-shell kind not as yet designated by a single term such as the spiny crawfish 
and the various kinds of crabs and lobsters, and another of mollusks, as the two kinds of calamari and the cuttlefish, that of insects is different. All these latter creatures are bloodless, and such of them as have feet have a goodly number of them, and of the insects some have wings as well as feet. Of the other animals the genera are not extensive, for in them one species does not comprehend many species. But in one case, as man, the species is simple, admitting of no differentiation, while other cases admit of differentiation, but the forms lack particular designations. So, for instance, creatures that are quadrupedal and unprovided with wings are blooded without exception, but some of them are viviparous and some oviparous. Such as are viviparous are hair-coated, and such as are oviparous are covered with a kind of tessellated hard substance, and the tessellated bits of this substance are, as it were, similar in regard to position to a scale. An animal that is blooded and capable of movement on dry land, but is naturally unprovided with feet, belongs to the serpent genus, and animals of this genus are coated with the tessellated horny substance. Serpents in general are oviparous. The adder, an exceptional case, is viviparous, for not all viviparous animals are hair-coated, and some fishes also are viviparous. All animals, however, that are hair-coated are viviparous, for, by the way, one must regard as a kind of hair such prickly hairs as hedgehogs and porcupines carry, for these spines perform the office of hair, and not of feet, as is the case with similar parts in sea urchins. In the genus that combines all viviparous quadrupeds are many species, but under no common appellation. They are only named, as it were, one by one, as we say, man, lion, stag, horse, dog, and so on. Though, by the way, there is a sort of genus that embraces all creatures that have bushy manes and bushy tails, such as the horse, the ass, the mule, the genet, and the animals that are called Hermione in Syria, from their externally resembling mules, though they are not strictly of the same species, and that they are not so is proved by the fact that they mate with and breed from one another. For all these reasons we must take animals species by species, and discuss their peculiarities severally. These preceding statements, then, have been put forward, thus in a general way as a kind of foretaste of the number of subjects and of the properties that we have to consider in order that we may first get a clear notion of distinctive character and common properties. By and by we shall discuss these matters with greater minuteness. After this we shall pass on to the discussion of causes, for to do this, when the investigation of the details is complete, is the proper and natural method, 
and that whereby the subjects and the premises of our argument will afterwards be rendered plain. In the first place we must look to the constituent parts of animals, for it is in a way relative to these parts, first and foremost, that animals in their entirety differ from one another, either in the fact that some have this or that, while they have not that or this, or by peculiarities of position or of arrangement, or by the differences that have been previously mentioned, depending upon diversity of form, on excess or defect, in this or that particular, on analogy, or on contrasts of the accidental qualities. To begin with, we must take into consideration the parts of man. For just as each nation is wont to reckon by that monetary standard with which it is most familiar, so must we do in other matters. And, of course, man is the animal with which we are all of us the most familiar. Now, the parts are obvious enough to physical perception. However, with the view of observing due order and sequence and of combining rational notions with physical perception, we shall proceed to enumerate the parts, firstly the organic, and afterwards the simple or non-composite. Chapter 7. The chief parts into which the body as a whole is subdivided are the hand, the neck, the trunk, extending from the neck to the privy parts, which is called the thorax, two arms and two legs. Of the parts of which the head is composed, the hair-covered portion is called the skull. The front portion of it is termed bregma, or sincipunt developed after birth, for it is the last of all the bones in the body to acquire solidity. The hinder part is termed the occiput, and the part intervening between the sinciput and the occiput is the crown. The brain lies underneath the sinciput. The occiput is hollow. The skull consists entirely of thin bone, rounded in shape, and contained within a wrapper of fleshless skin. The skull has sutures, one of circular form in the case of women, in the case of men, as a general rule, three meeting at a point. Instances have been known of a man's skull devoid of suture altogether. In the skull, the middle line where the hair parts is called the crown or vertex, in some cases the parting is double, that is to say, some men are double-crowned, not in regard to the bony skull, but in consequence of the double fall or set of the hair. Chapter 8 The part that lies under the skull is called the face, but in the case of man only, for the term is not applied to a fish or to an ox, in the face, the part below the sinciput, and between the eyes is termed the forehand. When men have large foreheads, they are slow to move. When they have small ones, they are fickle. When they have broad ones, they are apt to be distraught. When they have foreheads rounded or bulging out, they are quick-tempered. 
Chapter 9 Underneath the forehead are two eyebrows. Straight eyebrows are a sign of softness of disposition, such as curve in towards the nose of harshness, such as curve out towards the temples of humor and dissimulation, such as are drawn in towards one another of jealousy. Under the eyebrows come the eyes. These are naturally two in number. Each of them has an upper and a lower eyelid, and the hairs on the edges of these are termed eyelashes. The central part of the eye includes the moist part, whereby vision is affected, termed the pupil, and the part surrounding it called the black. The part outside this is the white. A part common to the upper and lower eyelid is a pair of nicks or corners, one in the direction of the nose, and the other in the direction of the temples. When these are long, they are a sign of bad disposition. If the side toward the nostril be fleshy and comb-like, they are a sign of dishonesty. All animals, as a general rule, are provided with eyes, excepting the ostracoderms and other imperfect creatures. At all events, all viviparous animals have eyes, with the exception of the mole, and yet one might assert that though the mole has not eyes in the full sense, yet it has eyes in a kind of a way, for in point of absolute fact it cannot see and has no eyes visible externally, but when the outer skin is removed it is found to have the place where eyes are usually situated, and the black parts of the eyes rightly situated, and all the place that is usually devoted on the outside to eyes, showing that the parts are stunted in development, and the skin allowed to grow over. Chapter 10. Of the eye, the white is pretty much the same in all creatures, but what is called the black differs in various animals. Some have the rim black, some distinctly blue, some grayish-blue, some greenish, and this last color is the sign of an excellent disposition, and is particularly well adapted for sharpness of vision. Man is the only, or nearly the only, creature that has eyes of diverse colors. Animals, as a rule, have eyes of one color only. Some horses have blue eyes. Of eyes, some are large, some small, some medium-sized. Of these, the medium-sized are the best. Moreover, eyes sometimes protrude, sometimes recede, sometimes are neither protruding nor receding. Of these, the receding eye is in all animals the most acute, but the last kind are the sign of the best disposition. Again, eyes are sometimes inclined to wink under observation, sometimes to remain open and staring, and sometimes are disposed neither to wink nor stare. The last kind are the sign of the best nature, and of the others the latter kind indicates impudence, and the former indecision. End of chapter 10